You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopolies through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. We've just rolled into Port Hedland and a quick visit to the Information Centre and I'm set on the trail of a hot story here with Arnold Carter, who's the Treasurer of the Ratepayers Association here in Port Hedland. Arnold, welcome to the Renegade Economists. Welcome, Carl, to Port Hedland. I hope you enjoy your stay here and uh, have a very fruitful discussion with the uh, community of Port Hedland. Yes, well, you've certainly been in the news aplenty and uh, we came down, had our lunch overlooking the port and it was interesting to see that this is one of the the global hotspots for mining. I only saw one ship in the port. There looked to be quite a few uh, vacancies out there, not the stories of 18, 20 ships waiting to be loaded here, full of iron ore and off to China. Well, if you uh, stay at night time, uh, which I presume you might say tonight, if you look at what we call North Port Hedland, is North of Port Hedland, you will count out there roughly about 12 to 16 ships waiting out there even today to come into Port Hedland and, and load. Even though the rate of loading is, is good, they can now turn a ship around with their three uh, loading ramps. They can turn around and send out uh, three ships per tide. And uh, the idea of a million tonnes, one million tonnes of iron ore going out per day is, uh, is not a rare item at all. The right tides and the availability of the uh, the berths they uh, send out. I think I had a statistical one month. They send out four days where there were over one million tonnes per day, not per week. And how much is a tonne of iron ore worth at the moment? At the moment, I think I was going through the financial review yesterday, 572 Per ton, but when you take that in consideration, uh, eighteen months ago it was a hundred and twenty dollars per ton. So you can see the drastic reductions has been, but um, that has not altered the amount of iron ore going out. They are still sending the amount of iron ore going out, and in some cases, I think it's more. But their productivity cost has been cut down almost to zero. And I think a lot of the dead wood that was in the uh, in the employment sector, including uh, consultants and advisors and managers, uh, they find out that uh, when push come from shove, that they had to do this to uh, to be on a competitive market because Brazil's not very far away. The only way that we win on Brazil with China and uh, in the past Japan, of course, was freight costs. So, of course, now that the companies have cut their costs down, and I believe that uh, one company now has got their productivity cost down to $23 per tonne. So at $23 per tonne cost and uh, a sale of 57 you are still making quite a considerable amount of money. There still seems to be a lot of activity around. Uh, noted how well the roads are, are paved around here. Uh, it seems that uh, industry still has uh, a stronghold on employment here in the region. Uh, how are the local employment figures looking? Well, we've done a complete reverse. It's like a psychological 
uh, analysis when you're planning something. When you're planning something, uh, you uh, employ a lot of people because you've got a uh, construction proposal and, of course, construction proposal does entail a lot of employment and, of course, anybody in the industry knows that any construction costs are all taxable deductions. So as soon as that is done and the constructions are finished and you go into operation, that's when you uh, you become a little bit uh, uh, downturn on your um, occupations. Uh, the uh, construction people all disappear because they are professional people. They go from one construction to the other. Then you get your operational people, uh, you know, coming in to take over the, the uh, manager of the productivity of it but unfortunately the most of those people that uh, we do get in the Pilbara are fly in fly outs so uh, when you're talking about permanent uh, population it is quite a disaster when the uh, construction finishes and the operation starts and there is a very significant uh, change in economy of the town when this happens. And so the local unemployment figures uh, does anyone do those numbers? Yes, it's around about the 8 to 10%, but the amazing part about this is that if you are a tradesman, you can seem to, seem to pick up the flow from the construction to the operation because once you're operating, you've still got to have maintenance people. And people who've got a trade uh, still demand very high uh, salaries. They still demand very, very good uh, conditions of working. So the tradespeople uh, are very well looked after. But where you get the handyman and the fill-in man that helps in the construction, there is just no availability for him in the operational cost because they've got to produce iron ore, they've got to have those trains running, they've got to have the front-end loaders going, so the whole operation is to be run by tradespeople. And so in terms of the, the the wealth that flows through these streets, what percentage of Australia's iron ore uh, is mined in the area and uh, are the local community getting their fair share? I would say that my rough estimates is the GNP, and I'm talking about Australia, I'm not talking about Western Australia, is something in the city of about 42%. So that's how reliable it is on the iron ore industry. And, of course, I'm talking about the gross national product too. And uh, that has a significant amount. But the amount of money that flows back into the town itself is very, very minimal uh, because the, um, the State Agreement Act, which they have with all the mining companies, they pay a percentage of their iron ore produced to the state government. And the state government utilise that in their normal budgets, which is not always to the betterment of the Pilbara, which where the iron ore originates from. So the only way that we can get a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, our amenities done is through uh, the negotiations that they have with the uh, iron ore companies and they make allocations of funding. But then about four years ago, we had in the introduction of the Royalties for Regions. Yes. which is an amazing thing and it was we thought it was the answer to the maiden's prayer but it was there was millions and millions of dollars available to the Port Hedland not only Port Hedland but to the Pilbara which was money paid by the iron ore companies but there's two things to it Carl it knocked everything out they were capital expenditure only and it was only available for the building of productivities 
I had one occasion to ask the minister. He was handing me a cheque for nearly $3.5 million towards the infrastructure of a facility in Port Hedland. And I said, can I have some of this as a operating cost? And the words were, he said, that's your problem. So why do you spend millions and millions of dollars of facilities and also remember that there was a percentage ratio, you didn't always get the lot, you had to put a percentage ratio building these wonderful uh, facilities and all of a sudden the operating costs become one and a half million, one and a half to two million dollars per annum. Where are you going to get that money from? Once again, you have a look at your town council and you see what your operating costs and there's no uh, further money coming from royalties for region for operating. You then have to go back and guess the only people who've got that is once again getting back to your community and your ratepayers. Just to reiterate there, 42% of the nation's iron ore comes from the Pilbara region and uh, we're, we're at this situation where the community is having to knock on the door of these uh, mega corporations uh, that are uh, at the height of the boom pulling in uh, $9 billion every six months, I seem to remember. It was incredible what BHP was pulling in. And so there was no mechanism to share that money back with the local community to ensure that you at least have some decent shopping strips and good libraries and hospitals and so forth. No, there was no uh, there was no set agreement on anything like that. You had to rely on the generosity of the companies themselves that they made available a certain amount of money. They usually put it over four or five years. They might say, well, okay, we'll make available for you $10 million over four or five years. You see, but uh, once again, uh, what are you going to do with $2 million? You, the only way you do $2 million is you've got to spend on infrastructure. Yeah, once upon a time, you, uh, you, know, you could use... Use that on your gardens and your swimming pools. And that's where your operating costs you. So just to give you one simple example, we have two swimming pools in Port Ellen, which is an amazing thing because we're only you're 12, 14 k's apart. They cost over $1.6 million to run. That is in addition to the amount of money that is paid for by the uh, by the attendees so you can have some idea of the strenuous cost to run something in the Pilbara it is very very difficult to get good staff and when you get good staff you've got only uh, do you got to pay them well but comes the big knock now where you're going to get your housing from and that's what kills everybody because you cannot these days employ people without the scenario when you interview people, they first thing up and say, where's the accommodation? Now, that did not happen about seven or eight years ago. That didn't happen. But, but once again, one company in particular, I shall remain anonymous, uh, started a system of paying $1,000 per week as a housing subsidy to their staff. Did he just say that? I nearly fell off my chair. Turns out it was BHP with a staff rental subsidy of up to $1,000 per week. By December 2014, this was being wound back. Unbelievable. A mining company who fought against the mining tax could instigate such irresponsible economics as to blow the rest of the community out of the water. People, we need to make sure mining companies learn from this and never do it again. All right, back to the interview. So, of course, that created a riot because that $1,000, then they put another $1,000 towards themselves and then all of a sudden you're getting a three-bedroom house in Port Hedland where they're demanding up to $2,000 per week and this is where the whole crescendo started. It was a disaster. 
And that's what happens with land and housing. Whatever income we earn, the landlord can uh, push us to pay more and more and, and soak up whatever that housing subsidy was very quickly gets taken away, doesn't it? It's gone very, very quickly because, uh, you know, you're not working eight-hour days up here. You're working 12-hour days. So you've got to have a, a realistic sort of a place to live in. And if you've got your family here, well, you know, after working 12 hours, you don't spend as much time as you can with the uh, with the people. And, uh, of course, the expenditure is very, very high. Uh, you earn good money. There's no doubt about that. But uh, the um, the population of Port Hedland has not improved that much. I think it did reach a stage where it was about 18, 000, 18 to 20,000. Uh, that included a very strong proportion of fly-in, fly-outs, which now once the construction stopped, that also stopped. So the only operations we've got now are people flying in and flying out. And there's so much empty availability of accommodation in Port Hedland. You should not have one person flying in and flying out. There is enough accommodation here to be able to satisfy any employment that is required in this town. And how does the community go about changing that situation? Because fly in, fly out must have just changed the whole nature of, of the mining communities in Australia. Not the mining communities, the towns, because I've been associated with the community for many, many years and uh, I've been on uh, up to uh, seven or eight community committees. And uh, going back seven or eight years ago, we used to be knocking people off to become on board, to become committee members and assist to making a contribution to the, uh, the betterment of the town and betterment of the kids and everything like that. And now I go along to these uh, committees, I'm only on about three or four, they're the same people. They're the same people. There, there is not a variety of other people coming in and making an effort because they've got no kids here. And the kids are the, uh, uh, are the forerunners of the parents that then go along to make sure that the kids are getting their, their, uh, you know, their fair share of the amenities. And, of course, if you've got no kids here and you're doing 12-hour shifts, there's not too many people, uh, you know, finish your shift and come along. So I go along to a football club or a baseball club or a, an ice cream club or like that. They just don't arrive. And it's the same half a dozen people that you meet at all these uh, these committees. And uh, it is not encouraging at all because you have facilities there that are not being used, but you've still got to pay for them to be operating. So it's not what you call a pretty picture. And Port Hedland was recently in the financial review with uh, a story about a, a three-bedroom fibro home that was sold for just over a million dollars uh, a couple of years ago and a family who uh, couldn't afford at that point in time had bought the house for some $230,000 of recent. So uh, have the falls been that significant and what do you put down to such drastic boom-bust house and land pricing? The house and land pricing is purely at the old economy of scale is demand. If you've got demand for housing and uh, you know and you've got a lot of employment, yes, they are prepared to pay big money to have satisfied uh, clients and satisfied staff. But when you haven't got that employment ratio and that employment demand which you have, well, all of a sudden those people are not getting the money, the subsidies have stopped, and all of a sudden you've got to start paying some money out of your income, which makes a big difference, and you can't do it. So uh, these houses that were purchased, the sad part about a few of my people I know now very strongly, did get tangled up and were 
purchasing these million dollar houses now i uh, i would not buy a million dollar house if somebody gave it to me but this was the crescendo that uh, people did and at the same time the banks were very lenient in getting the money they were giving them up to 80 percent of that money because of the high income coming in from the ratio but then people made the greatest mistake of their life and that is when they bought them they bought them for for uh, not for uh, equity they bought them for primarily interest only well all of a sudden when you've got a million dollar loan interest only and you're getting two thousand dollars a week not too many people remember the little side band put a little bit away for later on that didn't happen and they certainly didn't put any more than they had to when they're paying their own interest uh, repayments. And uh, the amount of mortgagee sales that is existing in Port Hedland at the present moment is credible. And of course, in a mortgagee sale, there is no second chance. If the bank wants to get rid of it, you're gone and your money's gone with it. So that's a sad thing that happened. I put it under. I don't put it under the, the terminology of of um, bad luck. A lot of time was just pure greed, and people just thought they would get away with it for such a long time. And it's sad to see them happen, but it does happen, and it's still happening today. So there were quite a number of um, honest workers who got caught up in that situation, but I dare say there were plenty of property professionals who were also involved in perhaps building some of these fly-in, fly-out communities. Uh, There's a lot of uh, hype around self-managed super funds, being able to invest in residential real estate, and I know there was a trend in mining towns for for them to be rolled out and used as a, 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 a lucrative uh, source of liquidity. But uh, how, how did it play out amongst the big developers uh, in the area? Did they all come through uh, in flying colours or uh, some of them wound up on the other side? Now, developers are very, very shrewd because I'm not talking about new housing I'm talking about some uh, some houses that are 50 years old and still bringing a million dollars, you see. Where that cre- created was that you had the, the husband and the wife both working, both receiving big salaries, both living in a subsidised house. Of course they're going to have excess money. So they turned around and said, well, okay, well, we're going to stay for a few more years. We'll invest in this housing because the rentals are so good. So they're the ones that turned around and got There wasn't too many professional people come up and bought these houses because they were well and truly that they were not new houses, that they were there, you know, they were, they were there at a very substantial return. But I think they realised that this could not continue on for, for eternity. And it was mainly the uh, husband and wife that had this excess amount of money that they uh, they bought these others for an income only. But And uh, if they were new houses, yes, I thought we'd talk about Osprey later on, but the most of these houses that were out for the, uh, for the uh, 2000 a week were houses that had been built here many years ago. And, uh, of course, location, location was what was valuable with those 50-year-old homes. I dare say they had some nice views. They were close to shops and so forth. So that's where this locational value of land is so important. And uh, it doesn't really matter how bad the house is itself. The whole concept of the Port Hedland is the oceanfront. The oceanfront is where the houses were. That's where the people uh, love to live, you know, to be able to have a look at the ocean. South Hedland is uh, 14, 15 kilometres uh, east of us. So you've got another township out there that has no ocean. 
And, of course, that's where a big development went out there. And it had nothing to attract people, you know, to uh, to buy out there because as long as you had houses available, say, on the Ocean Strip along the whole of Port Hedland here, they would sell for very big houses. They're the ones that, that they were 40, 50 years old and still getting a million, but they had a million-dollar view even though it was close proximity to the uh, to the loading ramp, to the, uh, the possible uh, dust uh, problem. But they could see these 100,000, 200,000 ships going out for four or five a day. So the vision there and the relaxation there in the ocean front, that's where the, uh, the money came in. That's where most people lived to live. They did not want to go on the hinterland. We're in Port Hedland this week in Western Australia with Arnold Carter, the treasurer of the Ratepayers Association. And Arnold, uh, so those price drops have been significant. A lot of workers have been wiped out. And I suppose uh, the pressure on government to do something about this, uh, so much pressure is always on the supply side. We've got to do something, open up this land for rezoning so the builders can build more homes. Uh, what happened in that situation here in Port Hedland? Just two words, two words, very important words, too late, too late. The, the, the shortage of land, the shortage of accommodation and the shortage of building was five years ago when it were the height of, you know, the constructions were, were in full bore. Both companies, Iron Ore was company, Roy Hill was coming in, BHP were upgrading, the FMG were upgrading to their utmost and the demand for, uh, for uh, accommodation was extremely high. And uh, people were, were looking, uh, you know, for somewhere they could get cheap uh, accommodation. So the government decided, yes, we'll do this. So they started off and they had a, uh, had a project called the Osprey Village, which is over 200 houses that they built for the purpose of, uh, of uh, for small businesses uh, can then buy a house at, say, uh, $280, $300 a week rental for their, uh, for their staff. So that was the implementation and the idea behind building this this uh, project out there. It was fine while it was in operation, while there was a shortage of uh, accommodation and, and you were in full bore as far as requirements of concern for small business and things like that. But that didn't last long. It was only about 12 months when, when it, that, you know, the whole the whole concept of Port Lennon had this dramatic reduction. So now you've got a whole village out there with over 100-odd houses in it all empty and nobody in them at all. And they're all well built. I've been out there. I've had a look at them. They're nice houses. They're nice, uh, very well uh, put together, very well gardening-wise and all sitting there with nobody in them. And the Labor opposition is uh, causing some ruckus in Parliament about it, wanting a bit of a, a commission looking at the, I think it was up to 500 homes, and uh, they were supposed to be affordable rentals, still $421 a week, which is huge. It's double what I'm paying on my mortgage in Melbourne. And uh, just incredible that uh, uh, they say there's some 42% of those properties are empty. Now, why isn't government reducing those rents and clearing that stock to the market? I mean, why doesn't housing operate like any other market? Uh, driving through town, I saw vacant blocks of land around the place, and it's like, hang on a minute, how can there be vacant blocks of land and high rental prices operating in the same market? I think the answer to that one at the present moment is that uh, 
people just can't afford it. Even the 400 is out of the equation. I think the latest one is they're looking at 25% of your gross income. That's the latest one they're looking at out there. But but the thing is that there's that at the present moment, unless you're uh, you know you're unemployable. You've got a house, so there's 200 houses out there that nobody wants to go into them because, A, they haven't got a job, they can't uh, get a subsidy from the employment, and employees now have stopped these subsidies, that's all gone. So, you know, you've got to start, when you're working, you've got to start organising the amount of money you've got to pay for your rent, and you're travelling, and then you sit down and you analyse, well, how much money have I got left? Is it worthwhile staying in here? Because the uh, the wages are still good, because they're still working their 12-hour shifts. But uh, the, uh, the the people, for some unknown reason now, is that they, uh, well, the population is not demanding. There's no d- big demand out there at the moment, but... I was talking to the minister last week, and and I had this discussion with him, and uh, he foreshadows that within the next couple of years or three years, he said, we're going to get this boom again. So he is now prepared for the boom, which he wasn't prepared for five years ago. So he's having the psychological lens back to say that, yes, we're going to come back to the big boom again. We are going to increase the uh, the uh, population of Port Adelaide. We do have plans to do that, so we will never have the same problem again that we had in the previous past where we had no house for free, but we've still got these houses built there. That's a wonderful psychological aspect of things, but until it comes to reality, those houses out there deteriorating. And I mean to say, you know, and people just don't want, don't want to live them. So that's the end, end of the story. I think they're there until they, they could turn around and make them available for this many communities and many Aboriginal communities I think it could could well and truly be involved in 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 some of those areas out there because there's a lot of them that you know at the present moment that do not make enough money or don't make enough money to pay that type of rent so if they did um, had a realistic sort of a value of that and they had a reduction in rent so that there would be some of those people that that could go in and live in the house and look after and maintain it and teach them back a bit of economy that, you know, they are part and parcel of the community, but not having to be fleeced to pay uh, big lots of rent. So there are those areas out there, and there is a lot of Aboriginal people getting big big money as far as royalty is concerned. So, you know, there could be a, an area where you could, uh, you know, in my opinion, you could assist in some of the, the homeliness that is out there at, at present and put in could be subsidised by that manner. Wouldn't that be ironic if... The resource royalty payments to the indigenous were used as housing subsidies and that in turn then bid up the price of housing. Just like the first homeowners grant, if the demand side receives a subsidy, whether it's the BHP staff rental subsidy up to $1,000 per week or something smaller, it acts as a subsidy for the sellers not the buyers, because we're all competing for these scarce locations. So it pushes up the price of the best locations and those lucky landowners make an absolute mozza from doing nothing at all. That's the core of the injustice and that's why this policy fraud that keeps on being handed out just has to stop. You just get the the gist through this conversation and, and walking through Port Hedland. It was a dusty wasteland. And I was like, God almighty, here is the world's largest iron ore uh, wharf. Uh, it, it's, you know, 
put through a record annual tonnage of 372 million tonnes in 2013-14. That's worth $37.2 billion. And they've got virtually nothing to show for it. Sure, they've got a new stadium, they've got a new library, information centres, pretty good, all those sort of things. But you go for a walk through the town and it is dusty and run down. Uh, development seems to be tied into uh, new shopping centres. Gina Reinhardt, of course, is building one. Everyone's meant to be grateful for the convention centre that's going to be tacked on in the side of that. But uh, she's going to be collecting rents, no doubt, of course. But you just think about um, some of the mining towns in Victoria of Bendigo and Ballarat and at least the incredible wealth that came through the region was reflected in the architecture. Well, you certainly see none of that in Port Hedland and to hear that uh, there's been a hoo-ha in the area, the local member for the Pilbara in the West Australian Parliament, Brendan Grillis for the Nationals, he's raising concerns that the 25 cents a tonne production rental fee first imposed in state agreements from the 1960s needs to be increased in light of uh, the state budget's deficit and uh, obviously the incredible wealth going through the area. And he's opting to uh, push that up to $5 per tonne to assist the state. And of course, BHP's come out jumping up and down saying it's a threat to jobs. Well, that's not how mining tax works. BHP has to sell their iron ore on the open market. So what it will do is tax away at their super normal profits, their economic rents. The reality is the people must get a better return on this incredible wealth. So I implore you, dear listeners, to keep studying, keep reading uh, the materials I suggest here and there because more and more each week in the news we're seeing a greater calls for a fair share of the natural spoils of planet Earth. That's what we're talking about. That's why we're renegade economists. Thanks very much for listening. My name's Carl Fitzgerald. Okay, Arnold. Well, uh, let's step on to the big question then of what's happening with the rating base here in Port Hedland. You mentioned these operational costs and you're getting the, the, the infrastructure built, but then to run the swimming pools and libraries and so forth, it's very costly. Well, uh, here we've had this huge property bubble. Uh, some people made a lot of money out of it. Uh, did the local council get much of a share of it? And what mechanisms do they have at their fingertips that could have helped? No, they got very, they got very little out of it at all. Just to give you some idea... The income, the rateable income for property at the moment in 2015, if my figures serve me correctly, was $29.6 million in rates. The wages structure for the town of Port Hedland was $28 million. So it left you a $1.7 million for the operation and running of all of Port Hedland. No way. No way. That is just an impossibility. So if you didn't have grants, and of course your swimming pool prices then had to be escalated to be able to help assist for the uh, for the reduction. Just twenty eight million on wages. How many staff do they have here? Two hundred and twenty two was the last figure I saw. Two twenty two. That is astronomical. Astronomical. Uh, They're all on two hundred plus a year. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
though. And of course, the other figure that 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 always gets me beat too is that when you do some of these analysis of figures, I'd like to know how much is paid in consultancy fees because consultancy fees are incredible. They are incredible. And that's always with a consultant. You've got to have the car, you've got to have the house, and you're paying only $150 a week, whatever the case may be. They are absolutely parasitical, you know, as far as as far as far the financials of a, of a town like Port Hedland, and, and they destroy it. I hear stories of some councils, no one being able to touch the computer network. If a problem goes wrong, you've got to call in the consultant. And, you know, there's their $500 site visit fee and uh, 10 minutes later they've fixed up something that people could look on the internet and fix themselves. So you you do wonder after 30 years whether privatisations that all of this rating pain that we keep hearing about, perhaps there's not um, further analysis needed on the costs of privatisation. And I see all these cars driving around with these fluoro strips on the side of them here in WA and Northern Territory and it seems like they're all private roadside vehicles that are out there doing the jobs that uh, you know your average council worker would have done 30 odd years ago. Well that's correct correct too and I, I think one of the ones on the inter, internet scheme is that I think I was reading somewhere quite recently where we, or the town of Port Hedland, employed something like about six to eight people in the uh, on the internet uh, system. And then I was talking to somebody from FMG, and they had two people that controlled their port, their railway line, and the administration. So that gives you some idea of 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 the job for boys or the 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 wrong the wrong analysis of utilization of of resources at six people for running the town of Port Edland when you've got a whole organization that they've got two people running their whole uh, you know and that included all their railway line and also the shiploading it just seems out of this world but it's incredible And then for you as a, uh, involved in the Ratepayers Association, how hard is it for you to dig into those council figures to see uh, exactly um, how much is spent on consultancies? We are forever doing this. We have a meeting uh, one week uh, prior to the uh, council meeting. Uh, we go through most of the expenditure and most of the agendas, and from then we raise the questions that we uh, consider is appropriate to the agendas. So yes, we keep a fairly good eye on them as far as um, as far as expenditure is concerned. But of late, we have not seen any financials for nearly three months, so we're behind the eight ball on that one. So they're they're just not available to us. So I got my first lot of financials last week was up for September. And it's the first one I've seen. But normally we do do a pretty good uh, work on the expenditure and, and request, uh, you know, uh, uh, request um, uh, itemisation expenditure. And uh, we do uh, keep a very good eye on. But the thing is that it's, it, it's like everything else, it's in the past. We don't get items of things they have already been paid. So it's not prepayments, it's past payments. So all you're looking at is something's been paid. 
Well, Arnold Carter, uh, good luck d- digging into those figures and seeing just how much those consultants are being paid because I'm sure that those uh, those big headlines we saw in the late 80s that, that paved the way for all these privatisations of the guys leaning on shovels, you know, 15 of them leaning on a shovel and one guy digging, well, it's been replaced in this era with CEOs and consultants on long Friday lunches. So uh, there's still fat in the system and one day hopefully we can move towards a, a fair and efficient economy. Well, you've only got to take for the instance of the iron ore companies. If they can start reducing their cost from, say, 80 to $27 per tonne and still make a profit, a opportunity for the local government and the local people here to look at their own path and start sharpening some of those pencils, if the iron ore companies can do it, surely the local government could do the same. Especially that wage structure, that's completely out of order as far as I'm concerned. 200-odd people, 220-odd people, you know, employed in the Shire of Portland. It can be uh, reduced to a very admirable type of uh, expenditure so that any further expenditure that comes in is not put on the back of the ratepayers because, you know, they are at the enormity. We pay a higher rates up in Port Hedland than a place like Dalkeith in Perth, which is one of the most expensive places in Western Australia to live. So the comparison there is completely out of order. So there must be a realistic requirement and an attempt to even bring that down so that the benefits of uh, the Port Hedland... Now, just give you some recent idea. They they leased the, um, the airport for for 50 years for over $150 million. So uh, I thought, well, out of this one, you know, if they're getting that some sort of an investment of that nature, and even if they're going to get 2% on it, there's got to be somewhere in that amount of money where that money can be put back and somehow reduced the operational uh, cost to the uh, the ratepayers of Port Hedland because it's their airport and they've got, they're getting this money in. Surely it's got to be something, even if they only gave us a 1%, 2% or 2.5% reduction in our rates because they are so high. My rates, I've only got a three-bedroom and my rates are $2,600 on, on a house in Port Hedland now, you know, and that that's that's pretty cheap for me but you're going up to the million dollar ones and you imagine what rates they're paying so that's two six per year yes two six per year then on top of that you pay 285 dollars for a um, a uh, service for a rubbish bin and also you pay a contribution towards the state emergency service for cyclonic things that's another cost of, uh, that are paid by the ratepayers so there is room in there somewhere for a vast improvement and I, I like to see a real, you know, financial conference or financial discussion held where we get some of that money that they've got, you know, invested, come back to the ratepayers, reduce some of the cost of living here because it's badly needed. And then just to finish off, what is the actual rating base? Is it is it on the land or the land and improvements? How is it calculated here? There's another, what I call another anomaly. Uh, we have what is known as gross rental value. Now, what happens is that the uh, assessors come from Perth every three years, three years, and they do an assessment of the value of that property. The shire rates are passed on that value that they give them, and that is purely a rental. So you come up three years ago, and you come up with that crest of wave where they've done a GRV value, you're way up here. And you do not get a reduction until they've done another GRV, which is in three years' time. 
So that house, which was last year, was to, uh, was uh, two thousand. Now it's down to four and five hundred. You don't get the benefit of that until the GRB comes in again and then just devalues the house. So there is an anomaly, and of course they say, well, what happens on the other side if it's down? Then you get the benefit, but not in the period of time that I think it should be an interim GRB, especially when you get a crash like that. So they get the benefits, but people are now paying, still paying rates. They will till next year on the high value which they done three years ago. That that hurts, doesn't it? There needs to be some, they have a automatic valuation system now around uh, in in many municipalities, particularly in America, and that certainly seems to be something because three years in between uh, land valuations is a long time. It ideally, should be annually, and you'd think they could do this sort of thing in an automated manner using uh, geospatial analysis with Google Earth and things like that. So. Fingers crossed uh, things do improve on that front. Well, Arnold Carter, thanks so much for seeing me uh, here in Port Hedland and and revealing uh, some of the pressures of living life uh, amongst these uh, million-dollar streets that uh, just pull in uh, billions of dollars uh, of money for the companies. Uh, Sad to hear that you almost have to beg to get those uh, operating costs paid for. But I can't leave without asking this question. You must have a good story behind the battle of the the port access and the railways and some of the uh, skullduggery. Uh, I didn't get to read too much in on it, but there was pushes for FMG to have their own railway line and Rio wanted their own railway line and their own port as well. And that was a big battle on how to get these ships out to sea as fast as possible and off to market. It's the old, old saying, investments for a railway lines in Port Hedland, they're not just over 100. In the case of uh, the Newman one, that's uh, 600. Uh, the first railway line, which I was very much involved in, was the Goldsworthy line. That was uh, 200 k's. And, of course, they were very, very expensive uh, to uh, lay down and operational cost was enormous. And uh, their rolling stock, once again, was very, very, very dear and they got them more from overseas. So they took the attitude that, uh, say, like uh, an Atlas Iron come in or uh, an FMG come in. FMG was a very, very rich company and they did have an enormous amount of iron ore deposits, which were very good. They tried to come in and utilise the BHP line, so they cut their costs down. And, uh, of course, the BHP says, no way. You know, we put the capital up. We're paying the operating costs. If you want to put a railway line down there, you do it yourself. And so that's exactly what would happen. Well, the amount of iron ore now that's coming through from FMG, there is no way in the world could they bought those two lots on the one railway line. So, you know, the, the economy of scale is that BHP increased their productivity. And if they had to put the FMG one on with the way they're going up to there, their uh, yearly things, they would never have been able, but they, they was adamant and they, the government uh, tried on many occasions to try and assist the small ones, but there was no friendly handshake at all to assist any of these. So one of the biggest ones that a lot I feel sorry for is Atlas Iron at the moment is still carting all their stuff in by truck. So carting in by truck is a very big expense against the railway, even take the capitalisation out. You know, in some instances, they're paying nearly $27 per tonne by truck. When you put that onto a railway line at about 8 to 10, that's a big difference. So that's that's why they didn't do it. And then there's still smaller miners out there that are, that will be ultimately, my book, I think, will be taken over by the major companies because they just can't compete. 
Arnold Carter, thanks so much for joining us here on 3CR's Renegade Economist. My pleasure. And uh, it's uh, very, very interesting. It's, uh, uh, it's, uh, the industry is, uh, is a wonderful thing. I've been here for the last 50 years. And uh, I was the first employee of uh, the uh, Goldsworthy Mining Associates, uh, who commenced uh, operation in 1962 before the iron ore embargo was lifted. So it's been a wonderful, uh, a wonderful chance to see what's happened from 1,100 people to 20,000 people. So it's uh, been a wonderful education, but there's certainly been a lot of improvements. We're talking that arch of time and the minister saying there's going to be another boom. Where do you think that could possibly come from? Where's another China going to drop out of the sky from? You'll never get another China, but I think what they're looking at, and I think it's probably a bit down the track, they're talking about oil and gas. I don't think they're talking about iron ore. Iron ore has reached a saturation point as far as I can see. You get smaller companies, but not big countries like China and Japan. Because once they finish their, their construction programs, they're going to, they're, they're running out of space to put more of these big buildings up. I mean, if you've been to China, you can see the, the, the enormity of it, and they're empty over there as well. Some of those people do not want to come out of the rice paddocks. They don't want to live in that type of stuff. So I think that you find that, you know, the GDP in uh, at the present moment of China is, is around about 4 or 5%. That, that's not great but I think they're looking at another one and I think uh, with the with the advancement of technology is the uh, the gas is going to be the biggest thing it'll take over I know in time to come believe me with the naturalisation, and I think it's probably there is a big, big heap of iron ore, not iron ore, of uh, oil and gas out there, but in the economies of scale, it's very, very deep, so you've got to be getting a good price, not $50 a barrel, before somebody come up and have a look at it. That, that's my own interpretation, or uh, I'd say uh, um, image of what, what will happen in the future, but I don't think it'll be in the field of iron ore. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Arnold Carter.